0: Uh hello everybody and welcome back to episode sixty what is that? Sixty six. six. Sixty six. Wow.
1: Yeah. almost the year of the devil. Um <laughs> <laughs> uh, The number of the devil. <laughs> the number of the beast. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Uh yeah, you're very welcome to another episode of F and I
0: Rap Chat. You said that like Terry Wogan. That was amazing. Terry Wogan. Okay. 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 There go. <laughs> um yeah, uh who have we got today, Polly?
1: We have Dahi Keane, uh, someone very excited to have on the show. Uh, his new film under the Cine Cahar scheme with TG Cahar, uh Finky, Mickey Finky, uh, premiered at Galway last week. Um, and there was a great buzz about it. Uh, and I really loved it. It's very, very bold filmmaking. Um, even just the way they shot it, the colour, um, yeah the use of the language you know it doesn 't feel like the language is tokenistic at all it's mm-hmm. it 's really part of the story and um yeah it's it 's really good i, I think it, hopefully it will uh get out there to audiences and resonate um and yeah die an absolute gent
0: mm mm-hmm. get as well and guys I would always encourage people to watch as much Irish orientated material including uh, uh, m- movies and TV shows yeah. Um it's vitally important in terms of the survival of Irish film and TV uh, take a risk watch stuff um, you know it's really important
1: yeah uh, Dahi was also the man behind uh, Klondike
0: yeah great show
1: yeah brilliant um, I think you can still get the Irish version on the TG Car player also as Dominion Creek um, which is the, um, the English speaking version I think they yeah, dubbed it's, the, it's
0: basically a dubbed version of, of yeah. the show which is on Netflix isn't yeah. it or Sweatflix
1: it's on Netflix yeah and it uh, yeah I think it's sold to Canada and America and places like that and stars Dar Devaney and Mike, Michael O'Malley and loads of great Irish talent uh, sorry Tomás O'Malley. Sean, o, Sean O'Malley sorry Sean T.O. Malley Sean, Sean T.O. yeah yeah uh, yeah so yeah yeah. brilliant chat with Dahi um, loads of great great uh, advice there And, and tips And um, so yeah
0: Yeah Round up from the Fla Any it news The flowers was last week The Galway Film it was it was. it was it was It was in, Galway.
1: in Galway Galway uh, got, We got the weather for it And yeah Yeah uh, yeah it was great Actually bumped into a lot of people And got some nice feedback About the show In person which Lovely was, Which was nice Someone uh, they Once I told them about the
0: podcast I said, Oh yeah I recognise your voice now And then It was really weird for them <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> you've made it. Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, So some films, uh, some we've heard some really good things about uh, Wildcards, uh, extraordinary. That's coming out. Uh, I think uh, in a couple of months, people were really buzzing about
1: it at the flat. Um, it won best Irish feature, mm-hmm. and uh, yeah, everyone was talking about it. Just that it just it it works. Um, the yeah. comedy is really good, and just you know, a, kind of a kind of a landmark for Yeah,
0: I'm Irish. hearing kind of what we what we what we did in uh, what we did in the shadow what we do in the shadows, mm, kind yes. of vibes about it. Yeah. Um in the best possible way. Uh, comparative uh, Yeah, cannot
1: um, wait to see it and uh yeah, so hopefully we'll have uh people on talking about that. Um also a bump along the road uh picked up a couple of awards um Bruna Gallagher stars in it mm-hmm. as a woman who finds out she's pregnant very late in her life, in her 40s. and
0: uh, Hence the bump along the road. Yeah,
1: yeah. Apparently it's brilliant. Yeah, so we're going to have uh, the producer and the director in a couple of weeks. Oh, lovely. Okay. Uh, so, yeah, I forgot to
0: mention that to you, but... Bit, <laughs> a, bit of networking <laughs> done in Galway while I, while, while I wasn't there.
1: Um,
0: uh, yeah, so... Uh, any yeah. other highlights or award-winning award, w- award winning sh- shorts or
1: uh, whatever? Oh, we got to see... Um, Jihad Jane uh, by Kieran Cassidy, uh, who also did The Last Days of Peter Bergman. A lot of great documentaries, so he will also be on the show.
0: Oh, great. Uh, More news so, to me. <laughs>
1: <laughs> <laughs> just been, I book
0: people as I'll, well. I'll don't worry. Away. <laughs> Um, usually I look if there's an actor on it's it's usually my deal um, and <laughs> yeah. now I'm kidding um, so yeah
1: yeah so yeah so uh, yeah please give us uh, send us your feedback um, on the shows uh, yeah I feel like we're we're on a roll now in terms of uh, people are, are tuning in a lot and we really appreciate all the support that we've been
0: getting yeah uh, equally just uh, just like everybody else over the last week there was a kind of an outpouring of uh of respect and love uh, for the actor Carl Shields that passed away suddenly uh, last week. Uh, We'd just like to, uh, just even from my own perspective, I knew Carl a little bit, uh, particularly a few years ago, and he was really nice to me. uh, uh, Just like dozens of stories you're hearing during the week, he he gave me a couple of words of support in terms of my own career uh, a few years ago, and he was was really, really, really nice. Uh, A character... Uh, but you know, n- not unlike any other <laughs> uh, wonderful actor out there. Uh, so uh, rest yeah, in peace, Carl. Yeah,
1: yeah. Um, yeah. And so Paul
0: Paul would have worked with him uh, kind of directly as well, or it, ind- indirectly.
1: Yeah, yeah. He actually he actually started on Fair City around the time that I started working as assistant script editor, and I just like we were all excited that he was being cast, but he really lit up the the screen. You know, um, mm-hmm. like I think. It, he, you know, in in soap you get booked for a while. You know, you a never bl- know a how, block, yeah, yeah, a block, and and see how the character goes. And he was just so good. Every writer just wanted to write more for him, and and you know he became such a huge part of that show. And I always thought it was a real lesson for like you know actors that you know you you, you it's from small streams. You know, um, mm-hmm. and you get your break, and then he just he just owned it. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, I mean he seemed to he was a real risk taker and he seemed to help so many people.
0: Um, I, I cannot believe some of the positive stories. Uh, well, not can't believe, but I was overwhelmed with how many people he affected positively. Yeah. Um. You know, from close friends of mine in personal stories right through to Facebook posts and various different bits and pieces floating around the web. It's, what an amazing legacy. And I think that um, the arts community needs to do something to mark that. Um, whether it be through you know uh, helping resurrect theatre upstairs but also you know maybe some sort of permanent uh, 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 permanent tribute to him I think is probably on the cards Um, and it would be very well deserved yeah yeah
1: absolutely Um, so yeah a
0: champion of independence
1: yeah yeah Uh, yeah he'll he'll be sadly missed um Paul, that's
0: uh, uh, we're back and ready for round two. Uh talk to me, Paul.
1: Uh yeah, so um yeah, so as usual if you want to uh help support the show you can go to buymeacoffee.com forward slash film network Ireland. And uh yeah, big up to our sponsors, Wildcard Distribution. Um yeah, as I said, they had a big, big week in uh the fly with the uh, Jihad Jane, they had Extraordinary um, and they definitely have more films uh, coming out soon so we will
0: have more news from them and uh, yeah, so yeah, you can find us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts um, what, what's, what other networks are we on?
1: We're on Google Podcasts Google
0: Podcasts and as always on the Headstuff Podcast Network Uh, check out other podcasts on the network at uh, headstuff.org and uh, as always brought to you by Wildcard Distribution
1: Let's go to Dyke Diakine thanks very much for coming in Um, what sort of feeling do you have now after so quickly after the FLA and screening is it a big relief or is it kind of buzz of getting it ready now to get it out into the world
2: yeah it was uh, it was great I mean we we screened what day is today now literally a week ago from today so uh, it, it, I I was delighted with how it went down. I think the reaction was very positive, and some great feedback afterwards, and some great chats in the boat club afterwards about <laughs> what it might me all mean and different interpretations, which I think is interesting. And I think it challenged people in a good way. So, um, and it, it was good to get it out there. I think uh, it's we had been working on it pretty solidly for the, for but the past well, apart from the writing, uh, for the past maybe year up to, up, to, up to the screening, so uh, there wasn't much of a hiatus between when we got the DCP finished and screened. It was, it was you know, a couple of weeks, so it was great to kind of have a, a bit of an immediate feedback uh, opportunity. Cool. Uh,
1: could you maybe just tell us a bit of what, what you can at this stage about Finky and how it came about?
2: Okay, well, Finky, it's the first film to emerge from a new scheme called Cinecar, which is a scheme put together by Tír Chiaráin, Screen Ireland, and the BAI to promote filmmaking in the Irish language. And when uh, Cine Ciaráin was brought on stream, I I had worked with Dara Devaney in a in a, in a series I had made, Klondike, and myself and Dara really, I, I think he's an amazing actor, and I have a lot of respect for Dara and his talent. So uh, I I I was thinking about you know a feature project that would be able to harness Dara's talents and. Um, I wanted to, to create something that I suppose was, was a, was a character-based story. And Finky emerged from that. And, and when, when Sydney Carr came on, on, on as an opportunity, uh, I wrote a, a, a treatment initially and took some inspiration um, from a, a, a Poirot O'Connor story that uh, I felt really... I, I read, actually had read it for a different project. It was called Djoriochd. And I was really struck by its, its kind of contemporary feel, even though it's written, uh, I think it was written in the 1910s. But it's, a, it's an amazing story. And then when we ended up, my, I ended up uh, bringing Jermud de Fouiche on board as a, as a co-writer on the project when we got funding. And Jermud uh, was a great, I brought Jermud in because not only is he a great talent, and I know him from around Galway, but he's very associated with the work of O'Connor. But then in the writing, myself and Jim went really far away from our original conception and we ended up writing something completely new, even though it still has roots in the O'Connor story. It's it's quite different. So I'd almost look at it like the same way when I created Klondike. I used this text by a man called Mickey McGowan, which was based in the in the about the Irish in the Klondike as a kind of jumping off point. Mm. And Jorie became a similar kind of inspiration for the film we ended up making.
1: Um, maybe just tell us a bit about O'Connor. Uh what, what, is the, what is the thing that... What roots are there that are still in the film or what, a bit about his work?
2: Um, I suppose the O'Connor connection is... Well, he's very associated with Galway, which mm. I liked. I think I was kind of trying to make something that was rooted in the West. Yeah. And there's a real anarchic spirit in his work that I kind of... Uh, I kind of like it. And there's, uh, mm-hmm. there's, there's a sense in O'Connor... Like, O'Connor was a, a renowned alcoholic, so he only wrote one novel because he never could keep his shit together long enough to write right. anything more than a short story. But he wrote hundreds of short stories, and they're great. But this novel is kind of his, his, a unique piece that he produced. And it has a really... What I like about it, is first, it's a story of an immigrant. So it's a story of an Irishman who ends up in London. And a lot of the work I do, even though it's, it's often... And I mean, nearly everything I've done this at this point has been rooted in the Irish language. Um in some ways, my connection with the Irish language, even though I was brought up speaking it, I wasn't from the Gwaeltocht, if you like. So I like that idea of looking at the Irish language through a lens that's maybe a little bit removed from, um, you know, that that's a part of me, but it's almost maybe an outsider's view of it in a way. From Be- the outside looking in. A little bit, yeah, yeah. Because, like, Klondike for me was a story about the Irish language, but again, looking for ways to use that on a global scale. So tell a story through the Irish language, through the you know the diaspora and mm-hmm. how the Irish went abroad and how you could use the Irish language in telling stories from anywhere in the world because we traveled you know we, we were forced into exile and then Joryth struck that chord with me too because it's a, it's a, i mean Joria the word means exile and okay. it 's a story of uh, somebody who has to leave their home and ends up on the streets and homeless in london so it's uh that really struck a chord with me, but also there's this kind of really like i said an anarchic kind of spirit that goes through it whereby the character joins up with this crazy circus and becomes, <laughs> it's a freak show, you know, which was a Victorian kind of, uh, I suppose, trope mm. uh, th- that we refashioned into this slightly more modern, almost like an Archeos circus. Uh, people with flames and motorcycles and that kind of, you know, circus, not quite circus, but more. Um, there is a big tradition of it in France where you have people like Royal Deluxe or Archeos. Mm-hmm. And these were acts that I would have seen as a kid because uh, Galway was a great place to grow up because we used to have a great arts festival every year, and still still does, it's on at the mm-hmm. moment. But as a child, you get brought to these shows out in, like, ma- car parks in the middle of nowhere, mm-hmm. and there'd be this amazing circus from France yeah. flying around the place, <laughs> jousting on motorbikes <laughs> with fire, and you'd just think, this is Mad Max, on you know, uh, yeah. brought to life. So a little bit of that spirit, I felt, could be brought into this story, and that was... Because, again, you, I wanted to make an Irish-language film that maybe didn't feel like... A, what you would expect from an Irish language
0: film. Didn't and, and, feel like a painting by numbers. Slightly, yeah. Know. Just
2: trying something a little bit different. And I mean I suppose the if you the films I I, I was kind of looking towards and the films I like, mm-hmm. maybe position it more as a European film, you know, yeah. or, or or just come from that sensibility. Yeah. Um, what what were your kind of direct influences there? Um part of it, I mean I suppose one part of me was looking at directors uh who had who had gone on to success starting out in, in, in minority languages. So, I mean, not even minority languages, but non-English language filmmaking. So, mm-hmm. I mean, if you look at something like Denis Villeneuve or Lantimos and their early works, and like something like Villeneuve's Maelstrom mm-hmm. and how he would have begun making his films in, in not even just French, but Quebecois, mm-hmm. <coughs> and And then, tra- tra- you know, how he built on that and, and, and eventually tra- uh, transitioned into more mainstream material but also i suppose the, in terms of the film itself uh, in terms of finky our mm. film um there's there's a lot in there i mean maybe some of the kieslowski kind of vibe yeah. a little bit mm-hmm. of that you know something a bit uh because there is a little the bit of color color exactly mm. and and maybe the slightly just the t- the, the mood of it yeah um some of the some of the earlier uh, Herzog, you know, a little bit yeah. of Strozek in there, and then La Strada was a big influence on it. I oh. think the whole Fellini type yeah. uh, type of cinema really appeals to me, and the way that Fellini can lurch from the sublime to the ridiculous mm-hmm. so well, uh, it's just it's a, like uh, I, I love La Strada and I love the fact that that it has that circus vibe as well, you know, yeah. and that sense of. The is kind of a road movie, and our film is a little bit like a road movie too. Bit of Wizard of Oz going on there too. <laughs> <you know>? So <laughs> yeah. lots of different things yeah, in the yeah. mix. Yeah,
1: I got a little sense of kind of Nicholas winding reference. Maybe that's more of a modern kind of a reference, but
2: maybe in terms of the colour and the yeah. solidity of it, yeah. Um, yeah, it wasn't a direct reference. Now, in terms yeah. of when we approached it, he yeah. wouldn't have been mentioned in our in our in our in our conversations. Yeah. But uh, yeah, I can see where you're coming from. Okay, um, and.
1: Uh, in the in the writing of it, then so you worked. Was it did, did you co-write or was it just Jeremy working on the script?
2: No, we co-wrote it. Yeah. So I would have pitched the treatment initially and um, got the funding yeah. on, on 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 a treatment that I wrote, and then Jeremy came on board and we completely rewrote like the script together. So yeah. uh, it was a great process. Jeremy's Jeremy's fantastic yeah. and he's really uh, committed. I think when he signs onto something, yeah. you get a lot. You know, it's like uh, he was. Good to work with for me because he really pushed me, and he pushed me, and he made the script I think a much more interesting concept than it maybe the initial uh, idea had been, and uh, pushed it in very interesting and challenging directions. You know, so um, he's a real force. You know, I think I think when he, when he when he when he when he approaches a piece of work, he just really gets his teeth into it. You know, and it was great to work with somebody like
0: that. All encompassing. What's your writing process? How does it work for you? Like.
2: This one, because we had quite a, it was a time pressure thing as well. So <laughs> we literally, we sat down and we outlined for quite a while. Right. And, and we had a big outline, you know, it was quite in-depth and probably too big, but, you know, better to have more than less. absolutely And then we just literally split it. To, uh, okay, you're going to do scenes one to 10, I'm doing scenes 11 to 20. And we went through it like that. And then we rewrote everybody's, everybody got a chance to rewrite the other person's half yeah. of the materials as we went through. So even though by the end of, we had done a first draft, it's kind of like a third draft really, because... yeah. yeah. After doing 10 and 20 weeks...
0: So you were getting the benefit of an extra rewrite Yeah, by, each going, time. by going back and forth. And we were pretty
2: hard on each other, you know, and yeah. uh, we had the outline as our spine. So we knew where we were going. Mm-hmm. But even in terms of within that, people were taking tangents and there'd be a lot of, you know, we'd have to meet up every week. We'd, we'd be apart for a week. We'd be working, but sending things back and forth. And we'd mm-hmm. meet up then and work through it at the weekends and trash it out and then go back again. in. So it was pretty intense, I'd say six or seven, eight weeks, that kind of period to just get a, a first draft yeah. and then another batch it after that. So, um, And then once we got, the, when we got the green light because there were five projects selected for script funding mm-hmm. and then two got put forward for, uh, f- to go to production and once we had gotten the green light on production we went back and did a whole page one rewrite of the script again. Right. Yeah. Wow, okay. Well, I mean, I don't think we're changing everything but we, we analysed everything. We re- rewrote the opening a couple of times to get it right and then we rewrote the opening yeah. A
0: circumstantial rewrite in terms of what you were dealing with or what was practical to pull off or...
2: No. A mixture of both. There were some elements now when we, you know, when you sit down and you look at budget and you're conscious then of what we can achieve with this budget. Yeah. And what, what, we, what we really want to do. But again, I think I'm, I mean, I've been working with budgets all the way through my career. I think, you know, you never have enough time or enough money. Mm-hmm. And I think if somebody is honest and says to you, and I've worked with the same producers a lot and... I'm very pragmatic about, you know, how a budget works. And I'm, you know, I'd be very aware of, of what you need to do to, to make these films. Mm-hmm. So it would be a case of, of, of what we really want to achieve. What's really important in terms of set pieces, working, making sure that they are, you know, you kind of preserve them as much as you can. Mm-hmm. But if there's something like a location or even you're looking at your like your character days. OK, this character is in 10 days and he's in three scenes here but how much not is really that gonna cost yeah he's not saying much or <laughs> she's not saying much does he need to be there does he need to be there yeah that yeah, yeah. kind of stuff so you can be you know you can be kind of uh, once you start breaking a script down into movie magic and you're seeing the scheduling and you're seeing how it's all gonna play out you can be you have to be you know you can be a bit tougher in terms of what's really going to end up on the screen. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. I kind of, like, I come from an editing background.
0: So what can I do with that 800 quid or grand? Exactly. That day, you know, you know and
2: where? often, I mean, it's hilarious. It becomes horse trading as well because you're working with <laughs> line producers and the currency for me is often extras because extras are a set fee mm-hmm. and extras, like, you need background or, yeah, you know, yeah. background. I and mean, I'm not calling them extras now because oftentimes they can make a scene. Like, if you get good background players, mm-hmm. and we had amazing people now working on, on Finky and on Klondike, it was really something that actually we put a lot of time into. And it became almost like a family of people who really bought into the project. Yeah. And that
0: really brings a good... It's spirit, good, good vibe. It does. Yeah, it and brings it, it all to life, quite yeah. literally. Yeah. And, and
2: they're, they're buying into it. So it's like... Because that's the first thing that gets cut. Those kind of things are like, OK, well, then you can't have this amount of background because, you know, it's kind of, that's the bottom of the pile. Yeah. So I suppose it's being conscious of what you really are trying to do with a scene and what you want to achieve out of a scene in terms of your character and your story. And if you can do that in a more economical way... But well, that's OK, you know, and mm. if there's something like does the scene really need, I don't know, an elephant? Yeah. Could, could you do it with something a little bit different, you yeah. know? And if it really needs an elephant, you get your elephant. You have know?
0: you ever made a call like that, which you felt je- jeopardised the integrity of the scene or a performance or anything? Or did you ever have to fight with? It sounds like you're producing your own, your own, <laughs> on your own as well with this. But have you ever had to kind of, you know, white, you know, white knuckle it and go, oh, okay, maybe I'll have to just go along with that. No, Well, I mean, I think there's always people asking for stuff,
2: you mm-hmm. know, say um, everyone, it's it's like, uh, there's a great story that uh, Ingmar Bergman tells about rushes. And he's always like, he's kind of ambivalent about watching rushes at the end of the day. Because you sit at rushes and all the crew are there and say if you're sitting there in the whole crew and there's also a cat watching it. All the, <laughs> all the cat wants to see in the rushes is cats, you know? And it's like everyone who's watching the rushes are only looking for their... Department mm-hmm. so, I suppose your job as director is to make sure that if somebody is really like say if, if costume are really pushing for something and they really want think you know they, they keep saying it you know this is not going to work unless mm-hmm. you really put out all the stops and and you commit part of the budget to, to creating some some particular piece or or art department, I think they're saying that for a reason you know they 're not going to say it I think if you can find people who can. You, who are good to work with and who get how to work with a budget, they'll really stress the p- places you need to, to spend money, you know. Mm-hmm. So yes, you fight for those. Because I think if, if there's certain things that go up on screen and they're not right, you know, they stick out. And they compromise the whole scene. So if there's like a prop that just isn't working or a piece of costume that is that's weak, it's going to let the whole thing down, you mm-hmm. know. Mm-hmm. And, and at the end of the day, it's your job to make sure that everything that goes up on screen is correct. I mean, I think I think it's a bit of a. a fa- I, have, I have difficulty sometimes when people say, "Oh, you know, they let me down." Nobody let you down. It was your responsibility yeah. as a director. You're the one who's who's yeah. making the calls. So it's about being smart and figuring out how to get the least that.
0: amount of people to let you down. Yeah. Well, <laughs> but also how to get how to
2: how to be able to get it up on screen. How to make yeah. the budget go up. Like, I mean, and, and it's great because it's. I think if you can work with production, and I, 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 I'm blessed that we've always had a good team working from both sides of the camera. Mm. Um, they're trying to get as much of of the budget up on screen. You know, it's like because you can waste money very quickly on a film set, mm. and you know, if if, if even though like, again the budgets we've been working with have been you know haven't been haven't been great budgets, but they've been decent. You know, we've been able to get things done, but at the same time, it's it's about trying to make sure that the most of that budget ends up on the screen.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And you mentioned there just the job of the director, you know, carrying the the film on their shoulders. How are you with that? Is that something that you've built over the years as the projects have gotten bigger? Or is it still like
2: it's the first day of shooting still very scary? Yeah, I think it's always first day nerves, you know, you <laughs> kind of fit back to school. Um, a lot of it is built on experience. Yes. And yes, you do get better as time goes on. And you do get more equipped because it's like, there's always, I mean, everyone, you always go out with a plan and everyone has a plan until they get punched in the face, you know. And the first day on set, you're going to get punched in the face, no problem. Yeah. Um, and every day you get a punch in the face. So you just have to make sure that you're able to roll with those punches and come back and figure it out. Because a lot of directing is problem solving and it's being able to think on your feet. I mean, I think Fincher says the sign of a good director is you've got four setups left. You've time for two. And if you get the scene... Then you're you're able to direct, you know. So it's able to, and that that is often the name of the game. It's like, okay, we don't have we don't have time. We have we have like one hour to get the scene, yeah. and we're like, you might go into into in your prep. You're doing up all these lovely storyboards, and you're doing up your shot lists, and it's really you know this is going to be beautiful. And you're like, okay. you end up in the, single
0: uh, camera, uh, not, uh, whatever available lights there. Let's there go. you
2: go. And sometimes that turns out great. And yeah. I'm I suppose I've been blessed as well in terms of working with an amazing. Like DPS who are able to do that and who, who get that way of working and who are able to like Kyle Waters is just a genius and mm-hmm. he's able to think on his feet and and also a big part of it for me is like we actually enjoy it you know it's like it doesn't become a, it's not a problem it's like a challenge let's see how we can how we can how we can get over this one you know and it's like. There is this think tank of people on set who are like, okay, this is what we have to do in the time remaining, and here's what we have. Let's do it. And <laughs> it's never a case of, I think it's it, it. You know, on set it's so important to keep a good, positive atmosphere, and call is great for driving that and you know keeping spirits up. And and that I mean me too. It's like I think enjoy the doing yeah. is is a kind of our mantra, and getting out there and making sure that okay, you're making good work, but you're also having. You know, you're not out there, in, you know, it's, not, it's not a party, but at the same yeah. time, you're not killing each other when you're out there either, you know? Yeah. Uh, well, there's definitely, like, kind
1: of a a boldness in your work, in all, um, especially in your drama work, in terms of their huge, ambitious projects, uh, like Klondike. Uh, like did people, were, did people think you were mad when you were first embarking <laughs> on
2: that journey? Uh, maybe. I mean, I know we pitched Klondike... Initially, I mean, it was, it was it was this idea, we were going to do a Western in the west of Ireland. And then that was kind of, okay, and then we're like, but we're also going to build a Western town. That, I think, what people were kind of a little bit thrown by, that we were going to actually build the whole town. But for me, that series lived or died on being able to make people buy into the fact that this was supposed to be, you know, the Northern Territories. Yeah. So without having that kind of solid set, like a, something tangible and real that you could walk around and and do lots of long tracking shots in and create that sense of grit and dirt and mud and reality. Yeah. I don't think it would have worked. So um, that was the conception from day one. And it kind of emerged. I had been in Canada doing a documentary series. And one of the things that struck me when I was over there was how close the geography was in terms of, you know, same types of mountains, mountains, lakes, mm-hmm. trees. The topography was very similar. And how maybe we could harness that and create something that was set in that location, but do it in the, the west of Ireland. And when I pitched it around, I remember I'd gone out to a couple of the locations that I really wanted to use. And I had taken snaps there, desaturated them and then put them up against shots. You know, there's a lot of archive from Klondike. It was one of the first mass media events, if you like. So a lot of photographers ended up there and great resources to draw on in terms of, you know, your production design. So I'd taken stills from the archive of Klondike and my stills that I'd taken as on these reckeys and put them up against each other and included that in the pitch document. And people would be looking at it going, oh, you know, that place there at looks like Ireland. And I'm like,
0: it is! <laughs> you know, so that
2: was useful. Yeah. And then I think when you saw it like that, and also these towns were shanty towns. You know, they were literally thrown up from what was available on, you know, from the forest or the bit of canvas people brought with them. Yeah. Often people would, there's a great photo we'd seen, people would build boats because they had to go over a certain ch- pass. Then they f- were at the head of a river and they would often build a boat for themselves and sail down the river to where the gold fields were. And then one guy literally pulled his boat out, made a little hole in it for a door, and he lived in that for like two <laughs> years, you know, had like an upturned boat like a turtle. So it w- it was very makeshift. And I think that was we could play to that as one of our strengths. Nothing it didn't have to look too polished. It could look a bit rough and ready. Yeah. And um between uh, it was Pork O'Neill now who was the production designer in the first season, and then Mark Kelly came in on the second. And both of them really just did a great job in terms of realising the look of the town, the feel of the place, you know, how to how to get that rough hewn look and, you know, with 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 the budget we had in mind. So, um, yeah, I think people felt we were a little bit crazy, but I always in my head, I kind of knew it would work. You know, I just felt, yeah, if we can get this done and it was also I felt a great I mean, I always wanted to work towards doing drama. And it was a great opportunity. I think TG Carr believed in it. Mihalo O'Malley back at TG Carr always saw the potential in it. Mm. And I think he, he got it from day one as well. And he was excited by it. And they had kind of a thing going on with Westerns as well. They used to show a Western every Friday. So they were like, OK, we'll make a Western. So, yeah. But again, it was like, I, I think it takes a few people like that who you've worked with for a few years to have that bit of faith mm. in you and in the project to be able to get it off the ground. And I think, again, it's like I think David Milch always talks about this. There's two motivations in life. One is fear one is faith and if you can draw on that sense of faith well then people are going to come along with you because it's like if mm-hmm. if say if a commission editor kind of sees that you know, even a little gap there anywhere in terms of your faith in this project they're going to start getting worried and then they're going to be on your shoulder whereas if they feel no, this person knows what they're doing and they have got a real solid foundation that they're building on and they know what they want to achieve with it I think then people are kind of like okay go and do it <laughs> Yeah.
1: Uh, one thing I'm always really impressed with in your in all your work is uh the casting um especially Finky, like there were kind of there's kind of a mix of established actors that you know with ones that I'd never seen but are amazing what's what's your approach there
2: um I've always cast myself um even though there are amazing casting people and in, in, in Ireland and uh, you know obviously it would be it would be something that I would I would definitely, you know, I, I would be totally open to working with casting people, but I think when you're working in Irish language often maybe a lot of the, those actors wouldn't be on agents books or they'd be out there, you know, just some of them are just starting out. Mm. So a lot of the stuff I would do in terms of casting is based on theater. So like a lot of it would be actors who I've seen on stage who maybe would be acting the Tiwrk. So there's a the physicality
0: there you want to you want to kind of pick up on Force Is it trickier to to cast uh, Oscar?
2: No, 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 it's the same. Um I suppose the difference sometimes is, do you feel that an actor who is not 100% proficient in Mm Greilge would be able to appear proficient on screen? So Mm. that's something I think uh, you can you can maybe find out in casting sessions. So it'd be often there'd be a process where I would do a call and maybe we would do a few callbacks again, you know, just to kind of maybe just to do not only to do. Uh, lines, but also maybe to do a little bit of chat, Oscar go, and just to see what kind of level people are at, you know. And also, for me, casting is all about just getting a read on people and seeing, can I work with this person, yeah. same mm-hmm. as everybody else. Um, but I suppose in terms of finding actors who can work in the Irish language, it's a little bit trickier because a lot of the times they're slightly under the radar or off the radar, you know. Yeah. Um, but then again, some of that, like, for Klondike, we were able to have, because it was a bilingual project... There was a great pool of mm. actors we could draw on, yeah. in terms of the English language roles as well. And but again, even for those parts, a lot of those were actors who I would have seen on stage. Yeah. Um, I think I think it's a great training yeah. ground for actors, and Ireland has got some of the greatest actors going, and yeah. and lots of them, you know, waiting to get their break. Yeah. Um, and then again, something like Dara, who I'd worked with, he's just a natural actor. You know, yeah. I think he's done some stage work, but. Uh, for me he's just uh he just has whatever it is he has it you know yeah yeah and you mentioned
1: um some actors who might be less proficient um i guess that's a good test in seeing how much they want uh, how much work they are willing to put into it and just in terms of like uh along those lines of that question as well for filmmakers who want to work in Irish but might not be that proficient what advice would you have for them
2: um it's tricky because I suppose it's it, it, it the question would be why do you want to work in Irish? Mm. You know, are you doing it because you think there's an opportunity there to just to make a film or mm. are you doing it because you actually want to work in the Irish language? Mm. So I think you'd have to question your own motives. And I think if people see that you're doing it purely for
0: to tack it onto a Possibly, you know, yeah, I don't think that's the right way to approach mm. it. I think it's no, Jesus, uh, no. It's it's
2: I mean it's it's amazing that we have the opportunities to be able to make films in the Irish language mm. and Absolutely. I think if you have, but I think don't be afraid about it either. I think if you, a mm-hmm. lot of people in this country, even though they, they do have a pretty decent grasp yeah. of Irish, might feel that their Irish isn't up to scratch. But like, yeah. um, like I was brought up bilingual, but purely because we were in an all Irish school, you know, and we spoke mm-hmm. some Irish at home, but not by any means, you know, um, a great environment. Mm-hmm. And then when I, when I started getting into the business, I, 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 like TG Car was on our doorstep. But it was a case of me kind of getting my ear back into it again mm. and practicing. And I found I had this deep resource of language that maybe had been dormant, but I was able to just revive it. And, and then uh, it blossomed. So I would say I think if it's something that people are interested in pursuing, there's loads of opportunities out there to do language classes. And it's great because even on our sets, like our sets are bilingual sets. Um, and often people who, haven't ha- who have maybe struggled with the language in the past have come away from the set saying, I'm going to do a language course now and gone off and gotten back into it again. So Yeah, it,
0: it, it's about a, a sparking the curiosity, I guess, as well. Yeah. When if you live across from a running track, it's only a matter of time before you put on the spikes. There you go. Y- <laughs> you know, it really is. And I suppose it, it's, uh, it, you know, the more people you get involved to join the circus, you know, the more they're going to kind of enjoy the spectacle of it. Yeah, and yeah. there
2: are opportunities. I mean, I would feel that... There are there are great opportunities to make things in the Irish language. So you know, I think if people uh, are looking to to get, because I think one thing that I always struck me about TG4, they do take chances on things between projects and people. You know, it's like their whole mm-hmm. modus operandi is this notion of the suillella. Other way of looking at things.
0: Yeah. Um, well, even in in terms of some of the shows they've bought over the years, you know. In ter- yeah,
2: you could go. I mean, they had Breaking Bad before it was. The Wire was on there, yeah. a long time ago. Curb Your Enthusiasm was on there. You know, second season it was it was <laughs> being broadcast. So yeah, they they, they they've, they've a good radar. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, you kind. Of, so you had a background in editing. Uh, how has that influenced your directing? Um, I think it's really useful to have. Um, I think it's for me the transition from I always kind of wanted to end up writing and directing my own material, but starting out, nobody wants a writer director, you know, so you have to not only do you have to uh, hone a craft, but also you have to sustain yourself financially. And I think having something like editing or, or a camera or some other skill, you know, even if you are a writer, director or, or aspire to be a writer, director, um, it it's very beneficial from a, a means of being able to to you know to survive to have something like editing. A, a
0: trade within the trade, as completely, yeah. yeah. And
2: also, you can learn on on, on it. You know, mm. so for me, when I'm when I'm when I'm shooting, I'm always thinking towards the edit. You know, yeah. well, that's that's do always. You, do in you there.
0: edit in camera as you're going?
2: Not always, but I always will find moments in my head that I know that I have the shot that I need. Mm. So I'm like, and I'll be cutting in my head as we're looking at scenes and seeing moments that I'm kind of marking out and saying, okay, I don't need that other angle because I'm going to take that shot. It's going to cut with this one we have yeah. from here. Mm. So I know when a scene is covered, you know? Mm. Mm. And I think working with the script super and just making sure you identify what points you're, you're, you're wanting from certain takes, it really helps you be, do you know what it helps you do? It means Relax. Relax, <laughs> but also not waste time with getting yeah, coverage, yeah. you know? Because yeah. so many people go out and they just shoot overshoot, coverage. And overshoot. And you're like shooting, shooting the doorknob, you know? It's mm. like... But there's no need for it because if you know how the scene's going to come together or at least you know there's a, there's a couple of options that you have and you're covered well and you have a nice maybe into the scene and you have a good out and then you've got some meat to work with within there and you don't know exactly how it's going to come together yeah. but you know you have the scene mm. then you can move on and you can, you know, it's you're, it's about making your day as well.
1: Uh, what's,
2: uh, after Finky, what's, what's next or what are you working towards now? Um, I suppose I'm back into the the loneliness of the, the writer's room yeah. for next while. Um I have a few other projects that I've been kinda of had to put on hiatus whilst I was doing Finky. But that said now when we were on the edit on Finky, I was able to kind of get a little bit of work done on a couple of them. Yeah. I was over on this uh Aave scheme this year, which is kind of a European producer led workshop and I came as a writer director with a project.
0: Um how important do you think it is to participate in the likes of those schemes?
2: I think it's really, yeah, it's, 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 for me now, I found it very beneficial yeah. because at the end of the day, those, not only are they bringing the project on, they're bringing you on personally as well, because yeah. so much of this business is predicated on contacts, networking, and those schemes, especially something like Yavé, where it's European based, yeah. it just blows the doors open as regards getting in touch with people from France, Italy, Eastern Europe. There were people there from, you know, there were some uh, from South America on that, um, EAV scheme. So it just really opens the whole ball game in a a really exciting way. Different
0: perspectives and so on as well. Yeah, and opportunities for
2: co-productions because that's kind of, most of these things are coming out of, uh, it's very difficult now to get anything off the ground without having a couple of European co-partners. And these are the kind of places where you find those type of partners. And people may be thinking, okay, I could work with that person for four or five years because that's kind of what it's going to take to get something off the ground these days.
1: Mm. Uh, Going back to... Growing up,
2: was, it, was film always a big part of your life? I always loved... I mean, I, I suppose I grew up in a house where books were really important, right. you know? So I always... I was writing a lot. Uh, film, maybe not so much as a kid because, like, we didn't have a TV till quite... We had a black and white TV for a long time. And then uh, we didn't have a VHS player until I was maybe a teenager. So even when I was a kid in Galway, like, there was two cinemas and they were great. Like, there was the Town Hall Cinema which is like there would be rats running around the place, and the <laughs> a Palace, which is a bit fancier. Yeah. But uh, I remember like, as a, as a kid going to the cinema, like two things stood out. I remember going to see the Transformers movie that was on, and then we saw uh, Moonwalker, the Michael Jackson film. Yes. And like in Moonwalker, <laughs> Michael Jackson turns into a car. And I'm kind of like, is he a Transformer? So, <laughs> so I'm like kind of putting the two things together. It's all linked. Yeah, so, I mean, once, once we kind of got into having a VHS player, then... The doors blew open, and the, the th- animated Transformers movie. Oh yeah, nineteen eighty seven. Orson Welles. Yeah, he oh, yeah Unicron yeah. or the the, the, <laughs> the voice of a planet. Yeah, <laughs> I wouldn't have known Orson Welles back then, mm. obviously. But uh, it, it was it was it was something that I suppose we we always saw the fil- going to the films was always a big event. Yeah. You know, it was something that you build up towards, and was something like an exciting day out. And it was, you know, it was it was part of a. A magical kind of thing where you'd sit in the the darkened room when you'd a watch po- this a por- movie. A portal, yeah, yeah. And and really, and even then, watching films when we were suppose when VHS did come into the house, it was also similarly an event. It was yeah. like everyone would gather together, and we'd just, you know would put the lights down. It was almost like trying to recreate the cinema in your home. And there was you'd be able to go in and pick out. I remember getting like E. T. and watching <laughs> that, and just being all of us were like in tears by the end of it this is like E.T. is dead you know yeah. and just yeah having <laughs> these great great experiences we're all
0: still coming to terms with the the passing of E.T. I know
2: yeah but uh, luckily he rose again so you know there was probably chats afterwards about religious allegories and things like that <laughs> yeah. so yeah what it mean yeah um, <laughs> and I mean TV was a big thing then I mean when I was teenage years we used to get these tapes free with petrol you'd go into the, like, the BP station and if you paid £10 for petrol you'd get a free VHS tape oh, yeah. no way so we'd make sure that dad would go to the petrol station that yeah. gave you the tapes
0: yeah yeah and we used to record like, you'd be out with the garden hose sucking the petrol but out that's out it trying to siphon it off
2: yeah <laughs> <And> we also <laughs> did a lot of fires back in the day so you know <laughs> be using the petrol um, but getting these tapes and recording films off the TV and then watching them over and over. And, and also, like, shows. I remember, like, Twin Peaks was a big show and recording that off network Two, And you'd mm. be there with the pause button to make sure you paused the ads yeah. so that you didn't record the ads yeah. and that you kind of get the whole <laughs> yeah. film. Yeah, yeah. Um, and we had MMDS, like, so... It was, we were on the West Coast, so you'd get, like... I think it was, like, this bounced signal that was coming from the North... And you'd get kind of fuzzy BBC yeah. and UTV and some of the kind of foreign channels. Yeah. Uh, so you'd be trying to stay up and watch films, and like BBC Two would be showing amazing films late at night. and be trying to record them, and sometimes you'd get them, sometimes you wouldn't. You know, or bits would go fuzzy. You'd be like, "Oh, I never saw that scene. <laughs> <laughs> what happened?" Fuck. Yeah.
1: And then from there, what uh, did you? When
2: did you realize that you could actually work in?
0: Well, again, probably when he got paid, I'd say.
2: Well, that's part <laughs> of it. Yeah. I mean, I remember when growing up about, you know, maybe 14, 15, 16, getting big into film around that time and kind of starting to think, okay, is this something that could be feasible as a career? You know, and Galway was kind of unique because we had the Galway Film Centre and that was interesting because you could go up there and you could see people, you know, you could work in a Steenbeck. You could kind of get your hands on it. Mm. And then there was a couple of things that happened. Uh, T.G. Carr came on stream but also, probably more importantly, Roger Corman opened a studio in Connemara, yeah. and that, as a teenager, and now all of a sudden you've got like Don the Dragon Wilson on the streets of Galway making Kickboxer Three, and you're like, <laughs> "This isn't. This is Hollywood. It's kind of like some level of Hollywood." Yeah, yeah. yeah. But it, it kind of opened your eyes, like this, this. This could happen here. You know, it's like why it doesn't have to be America. This is real. Yeah, yeah. and it's something I could do.
0: It's mm-hmm. tangible. It's, it's tangible. Yeah, yeah makes and, it makes it real.
2: And what's interesting about Corman, I mean, I think if you put, like, a Mount Rushmore of film in the West, like, Corman's going to be one of the faces on that because so many people who began in Corman in Studios went on and opened up their own production companies. Mm-hmm. And it was kind of the the genesis of a lot of what now exists as the filmmaking community in the West, you know, came out of Corman's school of filmmaking. Yeah. And, like, Pierce Boyce, who I work with, he started in Corman and opened up boom Media. And, uh, you know, in some ways, like, I think Corman's you read some of Corman's books about how he, how his his theory of film and and what he did, and how he how, how he applied that. And it's like there's a lot to be said for it. You know, it's, it is a kickball scramble, but he gets movies made, mm. and the, not always. I mean, the later on stuff isn't always very.
0: Yeah, but that ideology in terms of the process of filmmaking is yeah. very is very important to Irish filmmaking because you're working with lower budgets. Exactly, low budget, but also with you know an eye on
2: it being something. It has a message as well, you know, mm-hmm. like his stuff always had a slightly left of centre kind of vibe to it. And especially his earlier stuff, like Intruder or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, that, that and, and, you know, his films made money because, again, it's, it's show business. Like there's a business element to it. You can't lose sight of it, too. And like mm-hmm. seeing him in the West of Ireland making his movies was really instructive. So after that, I mean, OK, that kind of gave a bit of a, I suppose, a jolt in the arm. But even then, it was it was considered, okay, well, at the same time, maybe go off and get a good degree. You know, so I, <laughs> I did an arts degree in Dublin yeah. and was up here for a good few years. And after that, I'd had enough of university. So I said, well, I'm still really want to make film. So there was very, I couldn't see how to put, how to get that going here. So after I finished my degree, I went straight to America and I started working on movies over there. And uh, I went to New Orleans because that's where I always wanted to go. Myself and my friend, Col. We decided both of us had always wanted to go to New Orleans. He was really into music. I was into movies. And New Orleans seemed a good place to do both because a lot of films shoot in New Orleans. So I went over there the summer I finished college and lived there for about four or five months and worked on a couple of movies over there. Just by literally walking up on the street to the set and saying, can I have a job? and got you can see me if you watch Dracula 2000 <laughs> with Johnny <laughs> Lee Miller uh, I was like, l- wrangling extras and they needed an extra body so I'd pop up on screen a couple of times on that <laughs> Yeah,
1: I didn't know New Orleans had an industry yeah well, it had a big tax break
2: Okay, and also because anything like a lot of Hollywood films come there to shoot for the tax break but also because it's very uh, okay there's a certain look it's, of it's gothic isn't it it's gothic but yeah. also there's a lot of other options there it's like Vancouver kind of mm. You can do a lot of different things there. You it's know? Versatile, exactly, right. and yeah. it's used to housing. It's like very touristy, so it's very easy to bring a big crew in and get accommodation and all that kind of okay. stuff. It's, it kind of serves uh, the industry quite well. Yeah,
1: cool. Um It's good to talk to filmmakers who are based outside of Dublin, but I'm sure it's not without its challenges.
2: Um I suppose from from my perspective, it 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 works fine. I mean, mm. I, yeah, there's. I would be up and down a lot with work. I would be traveling up here with script meetings, with uh, production meetings. And then when I'm shooting, well, I mean, you shoot, you go anyway, you know, so you won't be at home for that. Um, But yeah, I I suppose I'm kind of working between both, some of my material I'm developing is based in Galway, and then other
0: material I'm developing
2: is up here, so I'm up and down. But I mean, you're up in two hours, so it's, it's not too
0: difficult. Yeah, I think people need to stop thinking of divisions of kind of boundaries of funding in different areas, because... Frankly, I mean, Ireland is so small, a couple of hours away in the car, you know. I mean, if, you, if you're if you in the States or even in other parts of Europe, you know, that can be, you can be shooting two hours away, you know, mm. uh, every day, up and back four hours kind of thing. Uh, so I think a lot of people need to stop thinking about d- divisions and uh, kind of funding envy and start thinking a little bit more outside the box in terms of what's achievable, uh, collaborating in general you know, kind of going forward I think is really important.
2: And some interesting things have come on stream now even in the last year or two. The rap fund has opened in Galway which is geared I, towards... I, and what,
0: what I mean, is, sorry to cut across you, is that works both ways. A lot of people, like Dublin filmmakers wouldn't feel that anything anywhere else is available to them. You know, particularly Irish language material as well or, or opportunities. It's like, well, you know, a guy sitting around in the north side's like, well, I'm not going to go for that. Why, why would they give that to me?
2: Kind of thing, you know. Yeah, but if you look at what's happening in terms of the language, like the pop-up Gaeltics mm-hmm. are one of the most exciting things to happen for the Irish language in a long time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that, the genesis of that was up here in Dublin, you know. And it's people who just all were say decide- you know, we want to speak the language, we don't really have an opportunity to do it, so let's just do it somewhere. We, you know, create temporary Gaeltics in pubs, <laughs> and and you know, these people are are are. are mm, any of those people would be able to write something in the Irish language, I'd imagine.
1: Mm-hmm. Uh what's gonna happen now with Finky, is there any way that people will be able to see it or
2: Yeah, so after Galway, um we're hopeful that Finky will go on and have a bit of a festival life. Yeah. So and then after that we'd be uh, excited to get it at theatrical release here in Ireland. Um and there are moves afoot to pursue that at the moment, but it's kind of early days to say a definitive plan for it. But yeah, the idea being going to bring it around to a couple of festivals and then hopefully get a bit of a theatrical run here at home.
1: Um, what were some of the challenges, say, for Finky, particularly that maybe you hadn't seen coming?
2: <laughs> Puppets are really hard to work with. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> Wheelchairs are really difficult to work with. Really? Oh, yeah. We, we
1: usually when filmmakers use... Wheelchairs there, like the cameraman is sitting in <laughs> it. Yes. well,
2: right? in Finky Dara only has one arm, right? So most wheelchairs are designed for two arms. Yeah. So we had to get especially bespoke, uh, this bespoke wheelchair <laughs> made for a person who only has one arm, because both wheels are controlled from the same side, okay. as opposed to having, you know, I'm, I'm, you won't see this on the podcast, but my hands are now <laughs> making wheelchair <laughs> motions. Um, so if you have a one hand, one armed wheelchair, you have two uh, rims on on one side that you alternately push to control uh, the different wheels. So it's a much more difficult proposition and there was kind of a learning curve because myself and Dara had been practicing a lot in a wheelchair, but it was a two-handed wheelchair. So then when we finally got this bespoke wheelchair, which we've been looking for for a long time, we ended up having to get one made. Uh, It was was maybe a short time frame for him to get equipped with it. But I mean, there's a scene where he's coming down a hill at speed and he's kind of like riding it a little <laughs> bit. Uh, it's a bit of a bucking bronco. But that scene took a long time to shoot. You know, it was like, here we go again. But I mean, he, Dara was. I mean, Dara. I put Dara up on a horse. I put him up in a up in the air in a in a harness. And a, you know, he's he he is not only is an amazing actor, he's a trooper as well. So there was no day on set on this film that was an easy day for Dara. Every day was tough, <laughs> and it was November. You know, and it was cold and wet. And you know, he's there, semi naked for. Couple of days in the big set piece, you know, so it's like it was a tough shoot for him, but I think he really rose to it. And it's a real, for me, it's a real tour de force and a real honor to be able to have taken some of that what he has as an actor and being able to hopefully put it on screen with, with the film. It's
1: not just November, just gone. Is oh, yeah, we shot November, cool. December. Wow, oh,
2: yeah, okay, so it was a pretty quick turnaround. Wow. yeah yeah, I mean, it was, gr- I mean, that's one of the great things about this game. like we got greenlit. In spring, I think. Uh, no, we got the BAI back in spring. So we've been it the previous autumn and we we're filming 12 months after that. So it was... Uh, and then we had it, myself and Dermot Diskin, who cut it and yeah. did an amazing job. Dermot was cutting all the way through the shoot. So he was on edit from day one of the of the filming and I was coming into him every Saturday and working on the edit with him and then learning from that and going back out for the following week reinforced in okay. what was really working and what, what we really was need to helpful? focus on. That was helpful. Really helpful, yeah. yeah. I, I mean, again, it's like this thing of looking at rushes. Very, a lot of sets don't do it that much anymore. You mm. know, myself and Carl were doing a bit of it. But to be able to sit in with the editor mm. and then see how it was all coming together. Because again, myself and Col had done a good couple of weeks of prep trying to define, because it is, like you said, there's a lot of style in terms of how it's shot. It's a very definitive yeah. look, yeah. but also camera style. And we were, I suppose we were experimenting a little bit in the first few days. And then we really figured out what was working. You know, like the big 18 mil close ups, that kind of stuff. Mm. That's really working. Get in there on Dara's face. Get really into his mind. Get in, It's his story. So it was, conf- it was confidence building. It was confidence building. And also, uh, sometimes Dermot would be kind of giving me, just showing me how things were cutting and saying, you know, maybe think about it from this
0: perspective a little bit more. You know, or just things yeah. would
2: emerge through the cutting process that would then be instructive to how we were going to go and continue on with the rest Ask, of the Asking
0: more questions which you could answer then as, exactly. you, as you
2: went on. Or yeah. things that we maybe were maybe focusing a bit more on if, like, okay, you're getting a shot on the 18, maybe getting something from far away but punching, you know, on a, on a longer lens or something like that just to give it a couple of other ideas just to try some other things out. To make so it more
0: vi- overall visually more interesting. Yeah, yeah, maybe.
2: exactly. Um, but i suppose and reassuring then in terms of that the lighting scheme cuz it's kind of again a bold lighting scheme that that was coming together and it was kind of working as a as a, as a kind of a style um so i think it yeah I, I, and for me having an idea in my head about how it might be cut and then seeing how he how he was cutting it so that was very interesting for me just to try out some other stuff as well you mm-hmm. know um, but yeah i i think having that day with him throughout the shoot meant that then we wrapped, I think, the second week of December. But we had kind of a, like when I say an assembly, a rough, rough assembly yeah. by before we broke for Christmas. Yeah. And then we able to think about that over Christmas meant that when we came back in, I think we had another 10, maybe eight weeks after Christmas. Um, we kind of really knew in our heads where we needed to go and what we needed to do in terms of the edit. And then we took a break and myself and Kaha went back out and did some pickups. That I think really helped in terms of the flow of the film and in terms of f- t- focusing on what the film was really about, and again, it came back to like the open I think we spent more time on the opening of the film than any other section right and really between the edit and maybe doing some pickups and figuring out how to how to open the film, how to make sure that we were telling the story we wanted to tell from the beginning, you know mm-hmm. and that was interesting for me because that's something that that would for me be the big difference between filmmaking and what I've done to this point in terms of t v work a lot of the TV work, you have your script, you shoot the script, and you kind of edit the script. Whereas the film was very much, you have your script, and then you shoot the script, but you also shoot other stuff. And you go off and play with it and for a while, with And you play with it, and it kind of emerges you know. a bit more. And you have that time to f- to, to let it percolate, mm. and to let it filter into your own head as regards what's the story really about, you know? Mm. And to make sure you're really telling that story from the first frame.
0: It sounds like, based on your experience with editing, that the environment suited you. But for maybe other directors, it would be that would be more more daunting because if they didn't have that, you know, I suppose if they weren't comfortable with that process of trying to, you know, uh, uh, look into the future or, or, or kind of uh, uh, project or, or kind of see where it's going to go, that kind of level of input In the assembly of the jigsaw, as it were, would be off-putting and maybe throw them off the sound completely because of the, you know, they were might have been under pressure in terms of time to get it together for, you know, the flat or whatever.
2: Well, I mean, I would say it's there's nothing worse than watching your first assembly. You know, it's like there's nothing more disheartening (laughs) than looking at this first rough cut and you're thinking of all the things that went wrong. You know, but then it's about it's only getting better from that moment on you know so it's about yeah. really honing it and refining it and fo- and sharpening it um, and yeah it's tough it's tough to sit in there it's tough to look at Russia's but I think mm-hmm. it's a necessary evil I think you mm-hmm. have to do it mm-hmm. because if you don't see what's working and what's not working you won't be able to rectify it yeah. and you'll end up making the same mistakes all the way through the shoot for me and then maybe absolutely and there might be people out there who work a completely different way and you know God bless them and let them do it <laughs> their way but yeah. this for me what really worked well and helped me Figure it out as re- as regards where we were going with the film, seeing it how it was come together.
1: Mm. Scorsese said he still feels physically sick when he watches the first cut. So,
2: oh
0: yeah, <laughs> like you're just looking at it, yeah. going, "Oh my god, what <laughs> have we done?" You yeah. know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Any yeah. any tips for any particularly filmmakers in rural areas starting out? Um,
2: I, again, going back to learn a craft. You know, uh, I think people are always crying out for good editors. There's always. Every time like, people meet me, they're like, have you heard anyone who's coming up who's able to edit, You know, who can actually do it properly? Mm. Because again, when I started out, it still was that kind of almost like a trade, mm. which was where you went into a edit suite as an apprentice, then maybe you worked your way up to assistant, and then you could learn at the shoulder whilst you watched an editor, and then eventually maybe if you really wanted to, you could become an editor, you know? Whereas now everyone has Final Cut and they're in their bedrooms and everyone's expected to be an editor. Yeah. And it's very difficult to... T- Absolutely. You know, everyone can have a hammer. doesn't mean you're all a carpenter. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, I think you can you can teach yourself. Absolutely. But I think it's very helpful to learn from somebody who's doing it, you know. Mm -hmm. Um, So now, again, unfortunately, the only ways that seem possible to do that are these damned internships that people offer where they aren't paying a wage, you know, which is ridiculous because. It, it just closes the whole industry down to people who can only support themselves, you know so again you 're just getting a, a certain type of person into the industry, which is really unhelpful to my mind, mm-hmm. and you 're only going to get a certain type of story so I hate seeing these uh, ads where it 's like, Oh, come and be a runner in a great post house, but we 're not going to pay you you know so mm-hmm. that closes the door on so many people, mm-hmm. so I think you need you need to know your value well, p- partly yeah, but I mean, I think maybe post houses Value your people, you know. Um, I, I, I personally don't agree with that. And I know it's kind of industry standard, so it's difficult to kind of push back against that. Mm. Um, having a craft is, is great because, again, you can you can support yourself then as a filmmaker, uh, whether it be uh, editing, camera, art design, art direction, um, working on, on, a, on, on a production design department. The other thing that's great, I mean, and again, I think people are doing it, um, listening to podcasts like this. I mean, I think they're these are a great way to learn. When I started out, I was voraciously listening to uh, commentaries on DVDs mm. and trying to absorb as much as I could from people who had done it before. And, and mm-hmm. um, you know, you, you kind of realize, oh, they've all had the same problems I had. You know, it's like it doesn't get any easier. So it's, it's reassuring. And, and you kind of realize that, you know, they're out there doing their thing. And again, it just makes it all that bit more tangible. that It's like something that you could eventually end up doing that as well. Um, I suppose being a be, for me it was about writing as well because you're trying to trying to generate your own material so it was a case of trying to come up with your own material that you could hopefully get up on screen. Now that doesn't suit every filmmaker because not everybody's a writer yeah. but if people are trying to get things off the ground I think getting out there and making a short is, is a great way to to get the ball rolling mm-hmm. because also so much of this industry is about getting a foot on the ladder through making some connections in the industry that hopefully then will open a few more doors to other jobs, you know, and trying to get yourself just in with 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 a couple of maybe a department, a camera department or a art department who will hopefully bring you on then to the next gig as well. You know, and that's kinda how it worked out for me in terms of editing. I had some great uh some great people who 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 I was lucky enough to get in, involved with and they were they were able to teach me but also bring me on to gigs that they were working on as an assistant and that really meant that, you know, I was able to kind of make make my own way and then that mm. was kind of the, the beginning of it all.
1: Was there any lesson that took you a while to learn yourself along the <laughs> way?
2: You have to get used to eating shit. So it's <laughs> like, you, yeah, you, you, you can't be... I think, and I think... I mean, maybe more parts of the young people of today that feel maybe they don't have to do that, but I think if you're going to want to get started, you have to be prepared. Like, it's not a nine-to-five. You have to go out there and be happy to stay in and do the job until it's done and do it to a standard that is going to be, you know, your best work. Even if it means, like, I, when I was an assistant, I used to be in there all night ingesting material. And, you know, yes, you were... I don't think it was it was necessarily exploitative because I loved being the, I loved working in the industry. I was learning, but you do have to start at the bottom of the pile, and I think it's very you have to be quite
0: prepared to slog. I mean, it's well, it's the most beautiful dysfunctional relationship, isn't it? Like romantic relationship with film. Yeah, and you it, don't mind if someone treats you really badly as long as you get that kiss at the end. Well, I think it's not being treated badly because I think some
2: productions staff do get treated. Ba- like, a, like there's, a, there's a kind of a, well, a negative a, energy but, like, yeah, yeah. but but also i think people can be very nice about saying well you know this is your job you but at the same time you, you buy into that too you know yeah. so and it's 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 a crew it's like you're a part of a team so hopefully it's it's something you're wanting to do you know and and you're prepared to put in the hours so i think i think it's nobody's going to hand it to you you have to go out there and work for it and it's like you know how do you become a director work hard every day for 10 years and maybe then become, you know, you, mm. obviously other people managed, you know, they get the golden ticket, but for yeah. Yeah. a lot of us, it's, it's really a slog. It's
0: work. It's work. work yeah. big. A, a quick one for you before you go. Um, how do you pick yourself up when things kind of momentarily fall apart from time to time? That's a good question. Um,
2: I think maybe watch a really good movie, watch something that really goes back to why you got into this thing in the first place Something that inspired you and something that you can return to and say, you know what? That's that's kind of what we're doing it for. Um get fresh air, exercise, you know, all that yeah. kind of stuff. Get out there, go for a run. Uh have some good people in your life who can, you know, who can tell your tale of woe to, who can <laughs> back you up. Yeah. This is, I suppose it's about minding yourself as well. Yeah. Uh don't get don't get too much. Can get too down on yourself don't be too hard on yourself because everyone makes mistakes and sometimes you learn from your mistakes move yeah. on you know it's like I think if you didn't make a mistake you didn't learn anything but hopefully you can take something from it realise okay next time I'll do it better yeah yeah, yeah. wise words
1: I'll I'll tell us, we could chat all day but uh, thanks so much for coming in
2: thanks for having me it was great I, and time. for a play for doing the show guys I think it's it's a great to have something like this in the Irish filmmaking community and I enjoy listening to it myself so great to be here yeah, uh, thanks, really
1: so thanks. thanks so much I really appreciate that cheers thanks
2: I'm Ola Doumi. And I'm Padraig O'Connig. And we are part of the Motherfuckal team. Motherfuckal's podcast of words, Irish, Irish words, and words from Ireland. It comes every Friday on the Headstuff Podcast Network. So join us for an irreverent and sometimes insightful but always exciting look
0: at the Irish language, Hiberno-English, and all sorts of word games at play.
2: Big out.